0: Welcome to the Corkscrew podcast on practice research beyond the PhD. Your host is Dr Sophie Hope, a practice-based researcher in the Film, Media and Cultural Studies Department at Birkbeck, University of London. Each episode brings you up close and personal to Sophie and a guest. We invite you to listen in to these personal stories and to be inspired. Hello and welcome to this next episode. Today I'm talking to Sunshine Wong, who completed her PhD titled Beside Engagement, a queer and feminist reading of socially negotiated art through dialogue, love and praxis. She completed that in 2019 from the University of Wolverhampton. So although Sunshine did a theoretical rather than practice based PhD, Mm. I really wanted to talk to her about why she did what she did, and how she did it, and what she's gone on to do nice. since. So welcome, Sunshine, thanks for joining us.
1: Hi there, no, thanks for having me. <laughs> um,
0: so first of all, can we maybe sort of do go go back to the beginnings of the PhD, and what made you want to do a PhD in the per- first place? You were a practitioner, you are a practitioner, like where? what were you mm-hmm. doing in the kind of year preceding the PhD?
1: Yeah, the year preceding that, um, I started in late 2012, I think. Yes, it was late 2012. Uh, Gosh, I'm starting to forget now. You know, it could have been 2013. The years just all start melting away. But um, I had just been in in the UK for a very short period. I was living in Berlin before that. And I moved here in late 2012. 11 um, and was doing, was kind of finding my feet really. Um, So there were a few things colliding, I guess, at the time for me, I had um, felt a bit unmoored because I left the environment where I had colleagues and people I trusted and was working with, even if it was kind of in a more ad hoc DIY style. Um, I felt there was like a group of people that I, you know, was supporting me and I was supporting them. And then moving here, I didn't really have anyone, you know. I moved here to be with my partner after a lot of toing and froing in a long, long distance relationship. And um, but I completely underestimated how how difficult it would be to 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 settle in a place and to reestablish that sense of familiarity when you're not moving to a place for for study or for work. Um, prior to that, my two larger sort of like moves in, um, my life, you know, moving to Berlin for one and to the States when I was younger, both were for study. And so there was almost like a ready, a crew of people who were equally as eager to meet others. And so I completely, I was missing that completely. And I was, you know, um, yeah, just trying to find that camaraderie. And, and I talked to some people. I was um, working freelance for a site gallery at the time, doing some project management and, um, you know, sending CVs out working in a cafe, just doing anything I could basically to get to know people. But I, it was over a year of, of sending CVs out, what, what felt like into the wind, you know, and not really hearing anything back. And I had a couple of kind of rough you know looking back kind of rough encounters with um just not very great project experiences there were there were not not with site gallery because that's someone I named and I don't want it to um to seem like I was talking about them but other sort of freelance sort of things that made that left a bad taste in my mouth I know I'm sounding quite vague but I just don't know really how to talk about it without sort of you know naming some things and and um yeah, so so the PhD idea was just something that I came across in a mad fever of looking for jobs and looking for paid paid opportunities, basically. I think at that point I was just feeling so um yeah, I just really wanted to have that sense of 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 security. And I thought a PhD also would be in that similar kind of setting that i'm familiar with you know being in going in to do a course and to meet people i thought that would be a great way to do that and i was really lucky and found this opportunity and and got it and i was at sixes and sevens for a while really about whether i should do it i at that point this was like yeah yeah some 10 years ago i, I don't think he, I think we were, it was just at the cusp of that moment where like PhDs seemed like something that everyone was doing, or at least in my circle of friends, maybe it was just cause my, you know, I just moved here. and But like in a few years time, I was like, wait, everyone who's, not everyone, but loads of people who are practicing artists are also doing PhDs. And I think a lot, for a lot of us, it must be that attraction of having like three years of continuous funding and support to do something that you're interested in. and yeah, so that was my initial motivation. And was the
0: um that was at the University of Wolverhampton. So had they advertised mm-hmm. for a um, a PhD scholarship, or what was the what was the actual invitation that you responded to?
1: Yeah, I I think I found it on findaphd.com or academia. Dot, not academia.edu. It was findaphd.com, pretty sure actually. And it took me to a blog that they had at the time. The the department um, that was funding this research was called um, the Center for Art and Design Research and Experimentation. And at the time they had a blog and it looked looked amazing. Um, and, and the application procedure was relatively simple. It was the, literally the only PhD I applied for. So I'm, again, really feel really lucky um, to to have landed it on the first go um but yeah it was kind of like a 500 word statement i don't remember going through the rigmarole of of like online application you know when you have to answer a billion questions some of which don't feel like they have oh no no yeah like where you have to write in like what degrees you've had you've done and and um yeah ex- your your cv has to be sort of tabulated the exact way that they asked for i think this was still kind of quite quite simple um so i didn't have to worry about going online so yeah it, it was a very straightforward process it felt like and
0: it was an open brief it, they didn't have a sort of subject matter that you then responded to or was it was it was it, was it entirely your kind of proposal
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I I see what you're saying. Like some of the PhDs are very prescribed, where you're working for um, a a very pre-existing project, and there's a a task almost that they want a researcher to achieve within three or four years. So it wasn't that kind of thing. It was very open. And it was, um, like I was saying, was for this particular center Mm That, um, and there was a cluster, uh, a research cluster, that was on social practice. Now, I can't say at the time that I really had what I even would comfortably call a social practice kind of curatorial practice, which is what I primarily do. It was just that I had a few really rough encounters with public facing, more public facing projects that that I really wanted to work through and, and kind of figure out why... Why I had the desire to do something like that, but yet, um, how how things can go so terribly wrong at the same time? You know, these good intentions, both from my own end, my own end, and the commissioners, and so on. So it was that? I felt it was it would a It was a great opportunity, in fact, looking back to do something like that.
0: Yeah, and so that those rough encounters spurred you on to kind of shape the focus of the PhD
1: proposal in a way yeah, yeah yeah I have to say that like the introduction kind of goes into it a little bit because I wrote the introduction at the very end having mm-hmm. done the whole thing I really had this like quite um optimistic hope that the PhD would straighten things out for me you know like ah this is what I did wrong and it would like you know this is how the right approach would have been, you know, and then onward I go. And it was not like that at all. If in fact, it made things not worse, but just um, made things more, I I realized how complicated the whole thing was. Yes, (laughs) that's the the life and the world of a PhD. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you think that you can like, kind of go like, oh, I'll look I'll spend some time and focus and actually it goes like boom, yeah. like it just sort of expands into, cause oh, oh, like are all of these different things. And it's like always this wrestling thing of trying to like bring it back to focus so that you can finish the damn thing yeah. <laughs> and, and have, you know, some sort of narrative that makes sense to yourself and to people who are reading it. Exactly.
0: And what, um, cause so you had a practice, a curatorial practice going into the PhD but you mm. uh, did you always know it wouldn't be practice? You wouldn't be in, working through your practice to do the PhD, or was there a were you not sure at the beginning? How did the kind of what was that conversation with yourself or oh, single Yeah, it, like? well,
1: it was it was a funny one because I wasn't sure. I basically didn't know what a practice based PhD would look like for me, and I thought in my great naivety that I would. Oh, it would just be easier to do a theoretical one because then it's just focused. I don't I don't think I really I didn't do the the legwork ahead of time to understand what a practice-based PhD would look like and therefore lack the imagination to to really have that discussion with my supervisor. And I think she was really kind of trying to leave it open for me to come to her with some ideas, you know, and lacking that I was, I thought, well, I guess I'll just do a theoretical one because i at least in a way I can imagine what that would look like. And I, so that was for me that the main thing that I just, um, and I also felt time ticking. I think if I had been given a bit more time or, or that, you know, cause it's a three year thing and they, and administratively, it has to be done within three years. And I was reminded of that quite a lot so I I just went like right okay well I guess I have to make my mind up now uh, theoretical you know mm-hmm. and then go yeah. on to do that so it was it was almost it was not a very well-informed decision I don't think um but equally I think I I'm sure and I don't want to sort of implicitly say that practice-based PhDs are easier it's not like that at all but I just didn't have the imagination for what that would look like and also felt under pressure to make that decision so that the school could kind of like write it in their books and I could also get on with it. So it was, it was kind of like that.
0: And I think also something else that's um, to say as well around that is it's also really pragmatic decision, which is no bad thing. (laughs) Because I think also with doing, if it was uh, a curatorial practice based type of PhD, that is resource and time heavy as well. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you need, extra funding to do anything curatorial uh to pay other people for resources and all the rest of it so it's that's Absolutely. also a kind of really practical consideration that is is, is really perhaps more boring than conceptual but it's, it's yeah. important that if you actually haven't got but access to boring. resources yeah. then you can't it will prohibit what you can do i think um but mm. um but even without practically doing the work, the, the kind of the, the practice bit of the PhD, you're still, I'm, I'm assuming as well, making, I'm putting words in your mouth, but it feels, you know, you, you, you perhaps are also bringing your experience of practice to the PhD. So it's it's still entwined. Did you feel like you were drawing on your experiences anyway? And
1: I think in the beginning part, I felt really... Um, I was that I was in foreign territory that um, my supervisor had recommended a few different books that I should start with to kind of set the scene for myself theoretically like oh so you want to write a theoretical PhD well here are some of the books you need to start with and that from that moment I felt I, I use the word unmoored again you know like really unmoored for my practice like that I oh I need so this is how you need to research. What was the book? You know, like I was oh, I think the kind of main ones were relational aesthetics, um, artificial hells that just come out at the time by Claire Bishop. Um and 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 uh the Grant Kester one, um uh, conversation oh pieces that's yeah. one. um those three, you know. It's like, of course I was like, yes, these are I mean I had I had heard of them and in my own when I was just kind of doing my own projects in Berlin, these were things that kind of had come into my orbit, but, you know, I might've read a little bit here and there, but never taken the time to really sit down. So I, I, I was like, okay, I, maybe this, what the next three years means is just me sitting down with stuff and kind of, um, oh, I was going to say compress, but maybe it's also decompress all the different things I've been doing prior to that which had all been very sort of just on the ground diy style just like not very i wasn't really drawing from readings very much because i think i also before that i I came from more of an art teaching kind of background so it wasn't like i i was so so i was kind of more kind of from that world of like being in the classroom to kind of talking about what art looks like and could be like with with, with children really, to being in the sort of more experimental space when I got into Berlin because it was just there and it was so, so exciting to me. Um, so even just kind of sinking my teeth and my ways of thinking into theory was a very new thing. And I was I was excited by it, by this sort of like opportunity to do that. But I think maybe partly excitement and also partly feeling like very, um, uh, like some measure of imposter syndrome, you know, of of like oh now I am a researcher, I need to do this, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like kind of disengaged from my practice for the, at least the first year or two, and I, th- I think in the in the last year, last two years, well, I mean. There's an expanded timeline. It's it's not really three years. It took almost five years to complete this. Towards the last couple of years, I would say I was like, no, I've 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 been so dis- detached from my own practice, trying to kind of like get my language and thinking around theory that I I've forgotten all about it. And part of the whole last couple of years was kind of reintroducing what all that was about. And and you know, like when you're doing a PhD, I think. Um, for, at least for me, I I I I kind of abandoned everything else, um, I, which I shouldn't have done, you know. Like I, I just felt really really kind of um, the the need to to really focus on this because it was such a big thing, and I you know, but I that was at the expense of of you know taking part in projects and 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 meeting people who were closer to me in Sheffield who might be interested in similar things. I was like, no, I'm in my room and I've got my post-its and, you know, my breathing exercises and I'm gonna write this damn thing because I just need to get it done. And yeah, it was it was kind of yeah, felt very detached, I think, from my from my practice for a while and then realized I can't be detached that way and brought it back in towards the end. And can you say a bit about how you brought it back in? How did you bring your practice in? Yeah, I think um, it was in the writing of it that I realized that I was losing myself in the voice a lot, in the in in the process a lot. Such a weird um, series of obligations that I felt that I needed to fulfill in the writing of it. You know, when you go to supervisory sessions. Not only is your supervisor giving you advice, I had second and third supervisors who were also giving me their perspective. And I was often told that I wrote very subjectively and that I was using I a lot and I had to go out and clean out all the I's. Wow. To, yeah, yeah, I had, yeah, yeah. I mean, like really thinking back, I was just like, what, what was that?
0: That's <laughs> a phd in itself isn't it the um i mean the the, the especially because you're writing about embodied criticality and embodied as, as you know from the from what i can understand the sort of and actually mm-hmm. something you know maybe you want to expand a bit on as well is the kind of um the content of the of the piece but mm-hmm. um but it feels like that um embodied aspect the situated kind of embodied aspect seemed really key to you so how
1: completely but that didn't come from the get you see it was something that sort of slowly emerged I think in the beginning stages like I was saying I had this hope that like if I could find the right thinking around me and immerse myself in that I will understand how to approach working in more public facing ways and more socially and like negotiated now I think of but at the time with socially engaged ways you know like I'm just I'm doing something wrong so so I, I had this attitude that slowly shifted over time that I realized it's not it will never be the right approach basically is what I'm trying to say like it will always be it will always feel like tender and a bit disjointed you know whatever you do in as an artist or as a curator artistically in social spaces, because it will never fit in. It's not supposed to fit in. and But it doesn't mean that it will stop you wanting to make a place for it, you know, somehow, because that's the way you work and that's the way you see the world. And it's a sincere thing, you know. But what I, what I, what I didn't realize early on was that that was how it was, you know, well, how it was, at least how it was for me, you know, how it is for me really now. Um, is that there is no real place for it, but you, it's about kind of trying to negotiate that what, what feels um, uh, appropriate for for certain contexts, um, and so this embodied criticality really came out of this ambivalence, you know, as my ambivalence like strengthened over time, rather than. Um, Got extinguished, which I was really hoping it would do. And like, no, I, I can go out and feel positive about this stuff again. No, I am not feeling positive, but I still want to do it. Why is that? Am I wrong? Like you know, like I wanted to to center that that feeling of ambivalence rather than kind of oh, push it aside because it wasn't going away. And I think that's when, yeah, it was kind of midway to the end point that I realized that maybe what I needed was to give this swirl of ambivalence a bit of a name and, and 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 uh way of thinking and a vocabulary around it which turned out to be embodied criticality but it was it yeah i mean i as we were saying like maybe talk a little bit you know it, in, inevitably i'll i feel like i need to contextualize some of the stuff i wrote in there i mean one of the the things i i read which had absolutely nothing to do with my phd originally was eve sedgwick's um touching feeling and in there she talks about this notion of being beside um thinking stupidity existing alongside something really acute and 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 brilliant you know and and that this sort of coexistence is something I was trying to figure out, you know, that it doesn't have to be this like really positive feeling that you all, you, you need to possess in order to go forth and, and do you know really good or public-facing art but rather like understanding all of these ambivalent feelings as well and and I didn't really know what to do with that for a long time you know like when when I read that so like, how am I this feels right I want to use this in my in my research but it doesn't feel like it has a place yet and so it really was much later on that it consolidated you know and reading it it feels like it, it has like it makes sense now but like it Oh, it was such a huge mess when I was writing it you know I was just writing like literature review after literature review for ages before I I could see the thread between stuff and the thread was really like how my ambivalence sort of was reading throughout it and so that then got brought to the top and made you know the the sort of main narrative I suppose
0: but I think that's so exciting because it is you've you've (laughs) described the knotty problem of doing a PhD which (laughs) (laughs) you don't know where you're going for quite a long time until you do so it's it's that kind of painful process isn't it to some extent Mm. um and the Sedgwick kind of framework or or set of ideas have have kind of kept you buoyant to some extent through that process it's really important to have those kind of allies um in text or practice that you're they're helping you through it <laughs> somehow yeah.
1: um yeah yeah I just didn't feel I think I was frustrated as well with all the literature that I was reading specifically about social practice or socially engaged or whatever kind of you know it's called in in different contexts that it just all felt so um like clear you know like and 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 there was a. Uh, this sense of um, wanting it to be like really um, embedded in like sort of, I guess what Bishop would call ameliorative kind of environments um, and activism versus what I guess she would kind of see as like um, aesthetic negation and um, more agonizing antagonizing kind of, um, uh, sort of really embedded in the sort of artistic context. And and I just didn't, I was just like, but I, I, I what about it's neither of those? What about it's not even, the, this isn't even the right kind of like axis to think about it. What if it's like some other thing? I mean, not that I still to this day know what that would be, but I feel like um, at the end, when I when I wrote the introduction, there was one line I keep going back to and circling over and over, which is what I mentioned earlier, like this desire to kind of, um, knowing that art doesn't really have a place in the context that you're interested in in this world. And really, if you wanted to do good, it would be activism, would be social organizing, but yet you want to kind of create a little space there that's out of art that maybe talks about something beyond and within and below it as well, and it will you know work more or less you know <laughs> um, to varying degrees of success basically. And it,
0: yeah, but I think that's what's so exciting about the work. And you know, our research oh, is really closely related, so I am inevitably really excited about it. <laughs> but I think yeah, yeah. Um, I think the you know what's your what you're developing is are some sort of thinking tools for other people who are also struggling with the nonsense around the practice and the um dilemmas and trickiness of of what it is not only that kind of we're doing as practitioners but how the policies how the institutions how the kind of discourses around the practice have evolved and so this you know it's a it is a i think a really helpful interruption or intervention into that that is also quite helpful. So for other people, it's like you've done a lot of that painful hard work thinking through in order for us for other people to then benefit from that. So I, I guess that sort of leads to a question around where where you see the work going, how it's influenced your your practice, your thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, as you finished, as as you kind of, I mean, I know what the hell's happened over the last year and a half. It's not <laughs> who knows, but um, we, yeah. you know, like, you, you you kind of handed in pre. Um, pandemic obviously but have you mm-hmm. have you had an has it kind of led to different ways of working for you
1: yeah I handed it in in sort of early mid 2019 and I've used this analogy a few times, but it feels really appropriate. You know, that feeling of like you've been skating for a while and you've got these heavy skates on, you take the skates off and suddenly you've got these light legs and you're just walking around going, oh, 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 I don't, I'm not (laughs) on these skates with these, you know, anymore and, and, and feeling a bit disorientated and not really knowing how to walk normally anymore. That was the feeling I had for a bit and also kind of, like I was saying, been, having been detached from what is really local for a while, you know, just focusing on the writing of this, because it was just something that was like this albatross. And <laughs> I just really, really needed to get it out of the way. Um, I felt like I really need to kind of plot my coordinates closer to home, you know? And, and so I started this reading group. It was like a slow reading group. And I called it a TLDR, you know, that thing that you write as an editor on the side. Too long, didn't read. Um, So I call it that because really it was kind of an excuse. I wasn't really a reading group. It was just like I needed an excuse to bring people together. And I didn't really want to talk about my practice because I didn't feel like I had one anymore at the time, which so I was a bit kind of oh, I don't want to be in an environment with loads of artists and have to talk about my practice. What else can we talk about? Oh, I know. Let's just like focus on some text, because that's something I've been comfortable with for a few years, having done like a research-based PhD for a few years. But let's just pick out like small text. And I, let's not make it so that everyone has to read it ahead, ahead of time. Let's just make it so that like we'll just come, have a drink, read a bit of text, that sort of thing. Um, and it slowly evolved. like. Became where like you could read it and have drinks and doodle. I I rolled out like big pieces of paper where people could doodle on, and then and then it became more because I was having like I was and I am still like kind of going you know, trying to come to terms with all the anxiety and depression, you know, that is part and parcel of COVID, of PhD and all, everything else, you know. Um, so I was like trying to incorporate some some kind of exercises i have been finding helpful into that more for myself too as a as the supposed facilitator or like person who brought this together you know who convened this thing um to have that at the top of of the reading group um but i guess yeah so that's kind of one st- funny little extension that's come out of the phd you know kind of still wanting to do a little bit of research but in a much more kind of slower and, and uh, yeah, communal way, yeah. And, and, yeah, just trying to figure out who, who my f- friends and peers are really for a few months. Um, so that's, that's been really great. I've done that in a few different settings and, and it was kind of growing and I've kind of put a pin in it now because then I got um, a position at Block Projects in Sheffield. Um, doing the public program originally. And then now I'm, I'm, I'm curator. So I'm doing the public programs and and the programming more, more broadly. Um, So, so that's really kind of taking up most of my time. Um, And as we were talking about before we started recording, you know, I've got a son who's just started school this year, and that's kind of putting my i'm I'm officially sort of like inducted into the sort of school calendar slash you know the sort of uh, really, really restricted time frames and having to do you know a lot of different kind of planning with with my time and life now so I just that that even though this sort of reading group thing is something I would love to put a bit more time on it's it's kind of been put on the back burner and then yeah block I think a lot of the thinking I've done in my PhD has really infiltrated. infiltrated yeah can yeah like sort of infuse I guess the the way I've been thinking about block and where we're going it's only a small organization with me and one other person so um, it's easy to it's you know that arts council term that agility <laughs> but it really it does feel like truly agile because it's just the two of us we can say well we don't want to do this now so like COVID programming is you know or COVID has stopped all the programming what what can we do in its stead that is meaningful and not just sort of like put a whole bunch of like archival stuff online mm-hmm. um and it really made me think about like and and, and yeah because of that pause it really made Gave me place to think about what the organization could be, what it should be, and and a lot of the stuff that came through the PhD got kind of like um, situated in that in that context. So so yeah, like for instance, one of the main themes that we have for this year is critical care at block, um, which came out of my third chapter in my PhD and there was a bit in there that I talk about like how care seeps is is like almost you know part and parcel of social practice in some way and I was thinking about how like some forms of social practice get um, relegated to to perform menial kinds of of social care um, and but I don't think of meniality as necessarily just sort of like the lowest form, but also where where care is missing, really, in these places, really bare forms of care that don't even exist. And then here's this art project suddenly, and it's supposed to like, kind of fill in those gaps, right? So so I was thinking like, oh, gosh, like it's, it's such a, and then because of COVID, actually even before COVID, this whole notion of care suddenly became really big like from about 2019 onwards. And I was thinking about this around 2017, 26, well, even before that, really, when I was writing that. And there was not much about it, but really in the last few years, it's become like huge mental health and care and stuff. So so, so I seeing that and then also understanding the really the importance of it, I really wanted to give it some weight, so hence critical care not just to give it sort of theoretical weight, but the critical as an urgency. I think it was Patricia Hill Collins who talks about like criticality, not just, you know, in terms of how much reflection and seriousness you put into it, but like, ah, it's urgent. You need it right now. So, so that's something we've been trying to, to, to make some sense of. And we've been doing that with an artist called JJ Chan and they're based in London as well, actually. So, um, and, and teaches at, at at King's College of Art, but has a really, really interesting practice and has been very critical of of institutions in the last year or two, given their sort of quite tough experiences that they've had with with CCA um CFCCA in Manchester specifically. They've written an open letter, so I feel like I can say the name. Um so yeah, yeah, it's been really, really good. Um, So, yeah, I guess it's kind of it's got an afterlife and these different things. But um, it would be great to kind of really spend some time with the PhD again now that it's sort of sat on my shelf gathering dust for a couple of years and and see what, you know, revisit some of the things in there and see where it's gone really in my life and my work now. That would be great. I think it's um,
0: we can put links in the show notes to the PhD to the all the you know the the people and organizations that you've you've mentioned um mm. and do you I just wanted as well maybe to ask because obviously there are publishing potential for the PhD that people do post PhD publish the whole or a version of the whole thing or you know chapters is that something um you know whether it's for peer-reviewed articles or a publication is that something you might consider oh
1: yeah I would love to but I'm so bad at kind of like Figuring out the ins and outs of that. Someone actually got, it's on my bookshelf over there, actually bought me a book, dear friend did, um, of how to get your PhD published. <laughs> and I should crack that thing open and be like, you all should. right, let's do it, let's do it. But it feels like, you know, like I've just, I'm only just now feeling like I'm in the healthy aftermath of the PhD. It was like for a while I had finished it and I put it away and I was so happy to not to see the back of it for a while, you know? And, um, but I do think it's, it's a shame to, to let it feels like maybe six people have read it, you know, like at the moment and it, and, and I spent so many years of my life doing it and it just, damn it, maybe more people need to read this too. Maybe it's not, you know, Um, but I just, yeah, it's just getting my act together and, and, and also not having, um, if I were working for an institution, like a higher education institution, I feel like I'd be more in more immediate touch with colleagues and resources that can help me figure out what the, the stages would be to something like that. It's like that's also something about a PhD that I found strange is how like you hand it in, you do your little graduating thing and you wear your square hat, maybe, if you feel like doing that. Um, and then you're kind of left out in the wild, like, okay, good luck. And you're like, oh, so what <laughs> what do I do now? I mean, sure, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a grown person. I can go online and Google and find like maybe postdoc fellowships and things like that. But it does feel like a shame that after such a, a close period of contact and working together, and, I mean, that's also, I also think it's kind of partly to do with how your relationship with your supervisors pan out ultimately. And I had a good one with mine, but, I mean, they're busy people too, aren't they, And and, and have loads of – rough things to consider and their own research and lives to 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 get on with and so you just inevitably end up kind of it's not even tailing off it just went and that was it it, yeah it just felt felt a bit like that Mm -hmm. you know so so what is a phd what what can an afterlife for a phd look like too like i mean yeah you know, what i'm doing is is one of those i suppose but mm.
0: i mean that's definitely one of the motives for doing this podcast series these different in, you know interviews with different different experiences of post phd lives but also mm-hmm. the workshop we did last term was um, was very much about that as well for 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 phd students who just finished or had finished recently And to especially because a practice research often isn't initiated with the aim of going into academia, or isn't that's not how things pan out anyway. So, Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I think hearing stories of the the different types of career careers that people go on to, either accidentally or on purpose, (laughs) after the PhD is really important to talk about it openly and to share like concerns or questions or tactics to to um, to continue being both researcher and or practitioner whatever you feel like you know identifying with but um but I think mm. those uh especially but really practical things like how do you you know publish your work so I, I've been working in academia since finishing mine in 2010 and I've still not published my PhD because I've mm. I, I've not had time and i also, I'm not entirely. Sh- you know, it, it is still it's still not entirely clear to me how you do that. I've written articles for peer-reviewed journals because that feels a bit more um, open and as a as an avenue. But to um, but yeah, the publishing process is not t- t- is not transparent, and I think it's different as well. It's obviously different for different people and subjects. Yeah. But um but yeah, so I think you're raising really kind of fundamental structural questions about the the PhD process in terms of its. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's point as well in terms of the life of a, of someone's career as a practitioner. Um, yeah,
1: I also feel like there are loads more like because when you're in the moment of the PhD thing, you do kind of really consider yourself a researcher like um, at, 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 a, at a certain level, and um, and there are not much, not many uh, uh, sort of positions and opportunities outside of if, if at all actually outside of academia that that can sort of clearly use those skill sets so um, and there are so many more phd's and there are those yeah. jobs as well so you're like you brought into this bottleneck and you just my my initial sort of instinct is to kind of jump away from that bottlenecking um and and do the, the reading groups and look for jobs in, in, in the art world. Um, uh, it's just territory that I felt maybe, I don't know, I could more readily find like a job, a paying job sooner than I could in academia. I think that was also the motivation, but not because I didn't want to do any more research. It was just where were the, I still need to, you know, pay my bills and I've got a child and da da da. So So, yeah, what you said earlier about the pragmatism of it, you know, that comes into play as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, Sunshine, thank you so much. I'm aware we've been talking for 40 minutes or so. Um, Is there anything Um, else you want to add about? um, I'm sure I've got lots more questions,
1: but I'm aware of time. Um, don't worry about it. If you have any more questions, feel free to ask. And in, oh, in terms of what I might want to add, I don't know. I think like it's it's the first time that I've actually been asked to talk about my PhD um, as an experience rather than you know what did you do, what did you talk about, which is also of course that's less interesting. But it's it's been the first time I've been asked to reflect on the process. Um, so which I've, I've found to be really great. And, and why is it great? It's great because I think at the time it was, it was so, it was, I I kind of had to numb myself to some of the feelings in order to keep going. Cause it was, it was, I found it really hard. And I think it, it is, this is something I also wanted to mention. Um, I think outside of um, more, sort of uh, universities with stronger research clusters and and that have the um uh, i don't know what what it is but basically like if you had a research cluster in if you were doing a phd in, in a more uh, that larger more 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 visible let's say university then then there's a camaraderie that i think that's more that, that comes together a little bit more quickly and, and 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 you can talk to colleagues and so on more readily than, than in smaller universities. I think in those places, a lot of times, practitioners and, and researchers live across the country, live in different places, hardly ever go to the office really. So whenever I went, I didn't see anyone like, and I found that really hard and really disappointing. And so that's also something that I wonder what can be done about. And I think the university did try in you know, different ways to like encourage more conversation between people, but just not living in the same place or I don't know what it was, but it just, it was always really hard to kind of cohere. And sometimes if I saw like other research clusters having like a real sense of camaraderie, I was like, wow, how does that happen? So, so yeah, some, I think, I think, that's also worth mentioning
0: yeah and especially (laughs) because that sounded like one of your motives for joining a program was to find your people
1: (laughs) yeah I went to the office the first day you know and I was like you know I had my mug I had like my little stationery set with my (laughs) post-it notes and stuff and I was going to set up my little office space and I got there I sat down and sat there for whole day and i was like no one's here what the hell like what's where is everyone and then i realized slowly oh oh no one comes or like they only come every once in a while and maybe you'd be lucky to run into one other colleague and and that would be it Mm -hmm. so i don't know i just don't know what, what what it was um i think yeah smaller universities not like a big named institution or a big named kind of research center yet still like you know it's has some resources to do something interesting yeah. I don't know yeah it just I just yeah that what that was hard
0: yeah it is hard I think it's common for a lot of PhD students to feel quite isolated um in any university again we've you know only got our experience to draw on but talking to other people about it is it's um it's it's not uh, it's not automatic that you join a kind of group of like-minded researchers they're no, quite kind of no, I few
1: and far between those true I mean I I know I might be idealizing like some of the situations mm. but it's just from the outside yeah. you know looking at and seeing that wow it's so active people are actually doing stuff together and mm. you know I mean that's so, again yeah. why we set up um corkscrew
0: at Burtbeck, because for, mm. for my own my own benefit <laughs> if nothing else that I wanted yeah. to find other people to talk to who were doing particularly um research through practice so that Again, like, what's the hook? Why, what is what is bringing people together? Is there a common question, or it may not be even the subject matter of the research, it might be the methodologies, it might be um, geography, it might you know, like, there are different um, yeah, hooks to kind of bring people together, yes. aren't there? So, I think, um, mm. uh, but it, obviously, like, you, like, you know, from the reading group that you set up as well, that takes that's that takes organizing, it takes time and resources sometimes as well so there's um yeah but I think it makes up it it helps so much being able to talk through behind the scenes um anxieties questions about a process of working um and um yeah yeah, that does seem like an important part of a PhD process Um, and post PhD process
1: yeah yeah the, for for i like to mention sort of like the um sort of the background work that happens and and that's something we do it we're trying to do it block as well much and it's the read it's the reading group that's given me that sort of like inspiration we do this webinar called harsh light um and it's all about kind of like the work we do behind the actual work that we do i guess you know mm. so So it started because like we wanted, my colleague and I were, we're having conversations about like, oh what do we do? What's block going to look like in a year's time? Like, how are we, how are you doing? Just checking in with each other as well. So we brought that kind of energy and that, that kind of level of questioning to a more public platform, which was, which turned out to be harsh light. So each, each time we just invite a couple of practitioners to come in and, and, Yeah, talk about how they've been surviving, how they've been flourishing in COVID time, specifically at that moment. But now it's kind of become a place where we can do this sort of work kind of parallel alongside the actual work of of exhibition planning and all that sort of stuff. So, and also because, you know, Arts Council came out, didn't they, last year with that new strategy, let's create with all these like key investment principles and all that sort of stuff, which I just wanted to ask my peers as well, what do you reckon? Like, what do you think of this? Does this make sense to you? So one of the remits as well of of Harshlight is to maybe take one of the the, the concepts that you're finding interesting as a practitioner and turn it around a little bit and look at it and see what other maybe concepts that you've been using to that, that you find helpful maybe outside of these terms. So so Harsh Light, yeah, definitely has been a great platform for doing that background mm. work that you're talking about. So important.
0: Great. Oh brilliant. Well thank you so much, Sean Sunshine. We'll be in touch and we'll put this yeah. out. And um yeah and thank you very, very much for your time and no amazing um sharing of your amazing experiences and your honesty with that.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you
0: for listening to the Corkscrew podcast, brought to you by Birkbeck University of London. If you'd like to join the conversation, visit our website in the show notes and sign up to our
1: email list.